Good morning, church. I'm sure glad God has a sense of humor, the way that everything just comes together and flows. It doesn't have to be exacting. And uh, the church is family, and sometimes when family comes together, funny moments happen. That's a part of life. And you know what? Part of, part of that life, it says, a merry heart doth good like a medicine. And so God has his way of giving us a dose of medicine. And that was just a great, great dose. So I don't want her to feel embarrassed in any way. We all have our... It was a double blessing. There you go. That's exactly right. See, because even, even in the reading of that double scripture, you, yes, you got a double portion, but God takes that. He's still speaking into our lives. Sometimes we get together, and I think there's things that we miss potentially because we just kind of get in a flow. We get in a routine. And, and the profoundness and the wonder that God, God uses and can use anything and everything in the service, even before we get in the service, to speak into our lives. It could be a casual conversation in the hallway. It could be through a worship song. It could be the scripture. But God has numerous ways in which he can speak into our lives. And so... This morning may be a good place to start. I want to share with you a true story that really happened. And uh, so I hold before you Exhibit A, a salad dressing bottle. And uh, one day, I thought, I'm going to have a salad. And I was just in the mood for a salad, and I filled my bowl up to the top. And then, now the way I pour salad dressing on, I like a little lettuce with my salad dressing. Okay, so this bottle says Italian dressing. I opened it, poured it on liberally, took my first bite. There's something wrong with this picture. In this bottle was not Italian dressing. In this bottle, exhibit A that I have before you, was maple syrup. I wasn't going to mention any names, even though there were only two of us in the house. No, the cats didn't do it. So needless to say, the aha moment, the expression on my face, what? I looked at the label. This is what the label said. This was not what was inside. So there was my beautiful masterpiece. Just shot. Okay. So... The label was to be a description of what was inside. This morning, what I want to zero in on is identity. More specifically, our identity in Christ. Who we are in Christ. Most of us, I would dare say, could probably rattle off what the Bible says about who we are. But, Digging deeper and believing who he says we are, I believe is a deeper matter and a more significant matter that I believe God wants to challenge us to, to, to let him open our eyes and let those things become a reality. See, that, la- that label is more than just a label. That label that we are as Christians... Uh, as new creations, 
they identify who we are in Christ, but they also identify whose we are, who is Christ. That is big. So in talking about identity, the, the definition for identity is the fact of being who or what a person is. So we live in a day and an age right now where who would have thought our kids would be assaulted and the whole thing about I, um, transgender personal pronouns, that, that whole thing about who you are, who you aren't, you can be this, you can be that. No, no. It's something that's very much flaunted about in our, in our face today. And um, one of the things that kind of makes that point all the more dramatic is something that Tom wrote recently, and I just want to share this with, with you as a matter of importance. The, the idea of this is that the identity of, peop, of people and our entire culture is being shaped and formed in ways that most people don't even recognize. It was more than 300 years ago when Scottish politician Andrew Fletcher said if a man were permitted to make all the ballots he need, to make all the ballots, he need not care who should make the laws of a nation. Music that is consumed by the masses will always have far more sway on the culture than any government dictates could ever command. That's why today's most popular music is not just concerning, but very concerning. Rap music is now the number one music genre in America. Two of the largest categories within that genre are gangster rap and drill music that celebrate violence and sexual abuse. Drill music is about drilling people with bullets. It sells to young people globally, black, white, Latina, and Latino, and Asian. But the bulk of the audience, mostly young, white males attracted by adrenaline-pumping fantasy, domination of women, and fearless embrace of gangster rap with violent young men boasting about gunning down rivals. Just one example of the popularity and reach of this music is that it was featured and celebrated, celebrated in the halftime show at the 2020 to Super Bowl. Some of the biggest names in the rap genre, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar, and 50 Cent displayed their music for an audience of more than 100 million people. And if you think those songs aren't affecting our culture, you're naive. Andrew Fletcher was correct in his assessment 300 plus years ago the balladeers have the biggest sway, the most impact, and currently that impact is not good. So in, so in talking about identity today, I really feel the Lord really stressed and made a point that he wanted to speak to this again today. And uh, so maybe this would be a good moment most of you are familiar with this book, but I want to encourage you, this, this book is really a powerful book. It is a good read, as they, they say. There is a lot of practical wisdom and how-tos in here and things to challenge 
our thinking and transform us. It says your identity has been stolen, discovering who you really are in Christ. You see, the truth of the matter is we have an enemy who does not want us to come into recognizing and walking in that fullness of our identity in Christ. You know, with all the stuff that is going on, the one who should really be afraid is the enemy. When we get up in the morning, he should be the one that says, oh God, they're up again. What are they going to do? And you know, it's interesting to me that in, in, like in the book of Acts, for example, you're familiar with the seven sons of Ziva, where they saw a man who was demon-possessed, and they say, we adjure you by the, the Jesus that Paul knows to come out of this man. And the, guy, and the guy says, the demons, I should say, says, Paul we know. And he says, Jesus we know. Paul we know. But who are you? And so what I took away from that is the demons have their own conference room somewhere where they're talking about and they recognize who Jesus is. They recognize who Paul is. And these guys, huh, they're nobodies. And he assaults them and beats them up. But the idea being that we have a true identity in Christ. We're not nobodies. We're not just a cog on a wheel. We're not just some cosmic pawn on a cosmic chessboard just aimlessly going through. You and me, we have an, a true identity. And that identity is found in Christ. In Acts 17, verse 28, it says, In Him we live and move and have our being. Just think about that. He's the only one who can make that statement. He's the only one that makes it true. Nobody else can. We sing that worship song that says, Nobody else can touch my heart like you do. Why is that? Because he goes right to the heart of the matter. No pun intended. But he does go to the heart. He goes to the roots. He changes us from the inside out. And so our sermon text for today is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And there it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Now in the New King James Version, it says, Behold, behold what love the Father has lavished on us, has bestowed on us in some translations. And so it's the idea, behold, that he wants us to look at and study intently. That he's about to make a big statement here. And what he does, he's going to take two truths and he's going to bring them together. He's going to merge them. And maybe before we go any further, this would be a great spot to pray. Father, I just thank you for the gift of this day. I thank you for what you are doing and what you're going to say. And I pray that you would give me bold utterance to say what's on your heart, that you would speak into us, that you would transform us, that you would open our eyes to see and behold that what you are saying about us is not just something nice or flowerful or flattery, but it's true. It's life-changing. 
And it's eternal. And this is what, we, what you've called us to. Father, I pray today that with the words you give me, that you would prosper them and that much fruit would come forth and that you would be glorified and that you would be exalted and that you would be reflected in our lives in a greater measure, in a greater way, now and as we leave and go out into the workplace and wherever our footsteps take us. To your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So behold, what does he want us to stare at? What does he want us to look at intently and study? What love the Father has bestowed on us. And so, in that statement there, our identity is relational. He is the one who makes us who we are. It's relational. When you look at all the different names that we are called by Him, there is that aspect, that truth, that it is relational. He's the one who makes us who we are. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. It's Christ who takes the initiative. It's Christ then who, who speaks into us, but we have, a, we have a choice to make, that we can accept it or, or reject it. So when it says, Behold what love the Father has bestowed on us. That love in that verse is the driving force behind what he says in the rest of that verse and what he wants to do and accomplish in us in terms of walking in our identity. I say driving force because... I was just trying to find what, what adjectives could I describe how powerful, how deep, how long, how wide that love is. And no matter what we think about it, there, it won't run out. There, it is so profound and so powerful. That is why in Romans chapter 8, towards the end of the chapter, he says we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. In 2 Timothy 1.7, it says he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And in, in 1 John, there's a verse that speaks the fact that his perfect love casts out fear. So when we think about this love, just think how powerful that love is. It casts out fear. You've got no place here. That love is able to vanquish and that love is able to transform our way of thinking and how we conduct ourselves and how we, we live out day to day our identity. In Romans chapter 5, the, um, the scripture that Donna, section of scripture that she read, she um, there, is a, there are a couple of phrases in there that are repeated six times. And it is significant that when God, when God repeats himself once, that's pretty good. I mean, he's wanting to make a point. But if you would read through Romans chapter 5, one of the phrases or similar phrasing that's in there, you will see the word more than that. 
In the New King James, it says more than that or, or much more than that. And he is making a distinct contrast between what we were being dead in sin, being ruled by sin, being dominated by sin, and what we have and what Christ did in our behalf at the cross and the resurrection. So six times he speaks to much more than that or more than that. Six times. So he is really stressing and wanting to make a point. And then he finishes, then he finishes by saying that we should be called the children of God. And the significance, and I, I just want to say a word about prophecy. Yes, there is an aspect of seeing into the future, but that is not overall the, the overarching operation of prophecy. By and large, what it mostly is, is a declaring of. And so when God says, we are called children of God, he is, he is calling something into being as though it were not. When God speaks prophetically to you or to me and addresses you in a way that says, you know, for example, like Gideon, O mighty man of valor, what is he doing? He's taking something, what he sees from the future, he's bringing it into the present so you can walk into what he's called you to be. So when he says that by him who loves us, we are more than conquerors, we are. But we still have, the, we still have to, all right, this is what he says, and now this is what we're going to do, and now we're going we're to walk this into this, and we're going to demonstrate this. But the idea that calling us children of God is a fact. It's true. And how we see ourselves will affect our willingness to step out and speaking and acting for Him. So in, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, there's a verse there that says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. So, as he is, so also are we in this world. You know, when I, when I think about that, that we, having confidence for the day of judgment, I want to just say also having confidence whenever we come to God in prayer that we can come boldly before His throne. Honestly, I couldn't help but think back to when the Koreans were here. You want an example of what it looks like to pray boldly. <laughs> but what was true of them is true of us. It's His love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, but not only for the day of judgment, but in the here and now to come boldly before his throne. And I can't help but think, most of you here are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Anybody? Okay. So in the Chronicles of Nar Narnia, 
there is Aslan the lion. And there's Lucy. And I got the I get the not not Lucy here. I better not qualify. <laughs> okay. But at different times in, in in that story, she is standing right next to the lion and she is just brimming with confidence. She is just he's here and this is what he's going to do and 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 just standing next to him and the idea that her her whole demeanor changes like she's wearing a sword one of the youngest kids wearing a sword ready for battle well why is that it's because of who is standing next to her that she's she's transformed to to ready for action ready to do what he wants to do but in a greater way not only is that lion next to us Jesus is dwelling in us. So I say, again, how we see ourselves will affect our willingness to step out and speak and act for him. My parents, when I grew up, the church I was brought up in, Sunday after Sunday, I heard I was a poor, miserable sinner. When I became a, a committed Christian, my parents could not get over the fact and they tried to tell me, there is none that doeth good and sinneth not. There is none righteous. Well, that's true. But that's not the full story. And so they tried to sway me and tell me, you're going off to be part of a cult. You're, you're going off the rails. Where did we fail you? But the idea was, you told me the truth, but that's not the whole story. There's more. And the fact of the matter is that if, if they would have believed what he said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That's not negating the fact that we still sin or are sinners. Paul recognized he was a sinner. He even said, I am the chief of sinners. I am the prototype of sinners. But he recognized that that was not the end of the story. He recognized, and Jesus told him as much, that he is faithful and that he is he's making me an example of his patience and long-suffering and he's going to make me an example to the believers. But think about if Paul had accepted the truth I'm a poor, miserable sinner, and he wasn't, never got over that. Do you think the rest of those books, like Ephesians, or Philippians, or, or Corinthians, any of those other books would have had the impact? Or They wouldn't have. But it's the idea that he knew who he was in Christ. That in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am who I am by the grace of God. He recognizes his identity is in his creator, his father, and that he's made in his image. And, and so a part, part of the deliverance that Paul received was a new identity. 
And I dare say on, on more than one occasion, there's times when I believe our thinking, our way of seeing ourselves doesn't line up with the way that God sees us. Am I the only one here? That have you encountered that? Does it boggle your mind when Jesus says, as he is, so, we, so are we in this world? But what's important is that what are we going to focus on? See, the one we feed is the thing that's going to dominate. The one we focus on is what's going to win out. We got a liar out there. We got an adversary who is good at accusing and good at lying. And he doesn't roll over and play dead. One of the things in thinking about this, this identity today, I just want to share with you this over the past weeks. First, Wayne spoke a two-part message, but the thing that really kind of just summed it up for me and just wouldn't leave me alone was, who do you think you are? Not in a bad way, but God posing a question. You know, when God poses a question to us, what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to draw us closer to himself because he's got something important that he wants to say to us. So when Wayne talked about, who do you think you are? He wants us to dig deeper into that. So then Steve comes along with a message and he talks about fully believing. Do we fully believe who we are? Oh, there again, my spiritual ears went up. God's going back and he's saying, do we really believe? Because who we are and what we're called to do are both part of the full gospel. But we're not going to be very effective if we don't believe who we are. And then uh, Tom, when he did a two-part message on signs pointing toward the real thing, he used a word in one of his messages frequently, and do you remember what that word was in that message? A little louder. Yes, relationship. These are huge. And God is making a point about relationship and he's making a point about identity, and he's making a point about love, and how these things mesh together to make us who we are. And so, Gideon. Gideon had a choice. Now, God was really good with Gideon because he called him a man of valor in Judges chapter 6. And Gideon is like, who, me? Me? But God doesn't leave him alone. But what does Gideon do? Gideon, in his response, instead of responding back to God and, 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 and receiving what God's saying, Gideon says, well, look at my tribe. Look at me. I'm, I'm weak. I'm, he's, he's looking at the this, this short, this shortcomings and his failings. And then finally, he, he comes to the place where, okay, if you're really for me and this is what you're going to do, then... He puts a fleece out and God honors that. But the idea that Gideon there at the outset, he chose to look at his weaknesses rather than to believe what God said about him. 
And there's something else that I want to say here that is really striking to me. As I was preparing, I thought about the prodigal son story for a moment. And we are familiar with the fact that with that sonship, we have, we have the best robes on. We have a ring on our finger. And, he, and, and, the, and his father killed the fatted calf. And we, we know that. But the thing that really struck me about this story, as this, this time here, was the older brother and what, what the father said to the older brother. You know, the older brother threw a hissy fit. He said, you, you know, I didn't even get a goat. I did all this stuff for you, and what did I get in return? And this, the father told him in Luke 15, 31, son, and I like the fact that he calls him son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Just think how much time went off the clock and he missed out. He missed out on what he had. He missed out on what could have been a, a more fruitful and meaningful relationship. And, and look how much time went off the clock. And I think they're not saying that to be a heavy, but I just want to go back and say that I believe there's a warning there. And that I don't want, and I don't want for us to miss out on who we are and what God has for us and what He calls and what He's calling us to do. I think about the fact that I went through over 20 plus years of my life a poor, miserable sinner before I got the revelation of the rest of the story. But for the, but for the youngers and for us now, I'm not going to lament that, but I'm going to rejoice in the fact that God is greater and He's able to redeem the time. So in... So as, I, as, as I'm going to, toward a close here, I want to share with you from Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And there, in Romans 8, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That spirit of adoption and that thing of adoption is a legal term. The enemy, as an accuser, he knows what he can and can't get away with. He can't get away with anything. But this is a legal term, this adoption. And that the Holy Spirit is a corroborating Credible, best witness. He is the best witness. And it says he bears witness with our spirit that we are. So imagine if you're in a courtroom and you're on the witness stand and the Holy Spirit's here saying, these guys, you are children of God. In the courts of the universe, in the in the power of the scripture, this is an eternal fact. 
The Spirit Himself bears witness that we are, to our spirit, the children of God. We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And it says that by Him we cry, Abba, Father, who's going more than just a finality, a formality, but going deeper into being able to crawl up into Dad's lap, being able to rejoice in Dad, being able to be intimate with Dad, and to pour out your heart to Dad, and for Dad to pour out His heart to you. That's what I'm getting at. And finally, Wayne used a word in his last message about posturing. Posturing because of who we are in Christ. And so the idea of posturing, I I think about positioning myself before him because of what he's done and who he's called us to be. So when he talks about that, he talks about believing who, what the Bible says about you. Growing your relationship. And then he talks about daily Bible study, frequent prayer, and regular fasting. But I want to I go to the daily, daily Bible study thing here. And, and that's, that's this. In Psalm 119, verses 9, through 11. It says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? The power of God's word is able to rewire and transform our thinking. When God speaks, it's going to happen. It's not an and or, or a, a maybe. No, when God says something, he's going to do it. So when it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? That's talking about how everything that you can think about yourself or that you do God's able to rewire you. He's able to change it. He's able to transform you. I like that passage. It's one of my favorite passages. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? Making, making them clean by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart I have sought thee. Let me not wander from your commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. So in the way of who we are in Christ, Take those words, those names that he calls us by and treasure them up. Take one or two, treasure them up. Think on them, dwell on them. And and I want to tell you this, what you're doing when you take those passages that speak about who we are, you're giving God the permission to let his word about who he says you are dwell in you richly. And if God's word is life-changing, and it's going to prosper in the very thing he purposes it to do, guess what's going to happen? Now that should be a tremendous encouragement to you and to me because encouragement is more than just an attaboy or flattery. It's building us up and who he's called us to be and to walk in what he calls us to do. And so I want to finish with this and that is from Romans chapter 6, 1. In Romans 6, 1, it says after Romans 5, you know, much more than this and this, and he finishes up chapter 5 by saying, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And then he goes into chapter 6, verse 1, and then he says this, what shall we say then? And I believe God this morning wants, we know what Paul says after that, We do. But God stopped me there and he said, 
What shall we say then? I believe God wants us to make a personal response to who He is, the great love that He has for us, and, what he's, and who He's called us to be in Him. So when Paul says, who, what shall we say then? What are we going to say to Him then? I'm not negating what he says in Romans 6. Let me be clear. But I want you to think about what shall I say to God then in light of what he's done for me? And we're going to take communion now. And I think this is the perfect place to make that intimate response back to God about what he's done and what he's called us to be.